You have your Bibles, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. We'll look together at verses 1 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Three questions for you. Who are you? Where do you belong? What is your purpose here? We personalize those questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? And what am I doing here? Those three questions represent what I believe to be fundamental human needs. I need to understand who we are, have some sense of self-identity, to understand who we belong with or where we belong and what our purpose or function is in this life. These three questions and more are answered in the passage that is before us in ways that I think are critically important. In fact, I think if we will listen carefully to the teaching of this passage as these questions are answered for us, the potential is here that our perspective has changed greatly. In fact, perhaps our lives are changed by the way these questions are answered in the verses that are before us. If you have your copy of God's Word, join me in turning to 1 Peter 2.1. Let's stand together out of respect and honor for its reading. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1, the Bible says, So rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk, so that you may grow by it for your salvation, since you've tasted that the Lord is good. Coming to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God, you yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house, for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it's contained in Scripture, Look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone, and a stone to stumble over, and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the message. They were destined for this. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. The message of the gospel is this. That Jesus came from heaven, clothed himself in flesh, lived without sin, and in spite of his innocence was nailed to a cross, not for crimes that he had done, but for your sins and for mine. Jesus bled and died shedding his blood that the wrath of God against our sin might be atoned for or satisfied in him. Jesus died on the cross crying out, it is finished. His lifeless body buried outside the city of Jerusalem, but that would not be the end of the story. For on the third day, the earth began to quake, the stone was rolled away, and the once lifeless body of Jesus began to breathe again. And in his resurrected state, at the right hand of God in the position of all power, 
with arms open wide, he beckons that in faith and repentance, we would come to him. That is the message of the gospel. And when that message takes hold of your heart, it begins to produce in you radical changes. For those of you who've been touched by the power of the gospel, you have yourself experienced these changes. You know something of what the gospel does to a man or woman when it takes hold of our heart. Those changes are addressed in the verses before us. Look at verse 1. Peter says here, So rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Which is to say, come away from your former way of life. When the gospel takes hold of our heart, it beckons that we come away from our old ways. That we walk now worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We put behind us those traits characteristic of a worldly life. Rid yourselves of, of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and, and slander. Do away with such things. When the gospel takes hold of us, it begins to produce in us a new kind of character. For some, those changes, that character change is really apparent because of the nature of the life that you used to live. There may be young people who come to faith having been reared in a godly home and perhaps there wasn't this great immorality that was at work in that person's life, but those two, those two, those two were raised from death to life. And those dead works, although appearing good from the outside, are now by the power of the gospel changed from the inside, now wrought by the Spirit, bringing praise and honor and glory to God. The gospel changes our character. Does this bear witness with you? When we are touched by the power of the gospel, we become an altogether different person. Our character is changed. It is true that over the course of time, in the process of sanctification, we are brought more and more over into the image and likeness of Jesus. Yes and amen. And we labor to be brought near to God, pursuing holiness in all of our life. But don't you dare discount that instantaneous power of the gospel to make dead men live, to change a rotten, evil, wicked, corrupt character into something noble and holy and righteous before God. The character changes under the power of the gospel. More than that, the desires change. Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants desire the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow by it for your salvation. Desire pure spiritual milk so that you may grow by it for your salvation. Here, there's a, a positive connotation about milk. There are instances in the New Testament where it's negative, right? In the book of Hebrews, for example, the last book we studied together, the author of Hebrews says you need to come away from milk. And you need, to, you need to crave for, you need to digest more substantive food so that you move beyond the elementary or basic principles of the faith. Here there is no such negative connotation. The idea here is that like an infant craves milk for their physical nourishment, so you as babes in Christ are to crave spiritual milk so that you may grow spiritually. Your desires must change. Your appetite must shift away from the things of this world to the things of Jesus. 
Now, there is a sense in which we condition our appetites. If you eat junk, you will crave junk. I don't know if you knew that or not, but it's true. If you eat bad stuff, your body will condition itself to crave for bad stuff. If you've ever made the transition from full-flavored, full-sugar, full-calorie Coca-Cola to some other expression of the brand, you know this phenomenon. The first time you take a drink of one of those diet drinks, it tastes like death. And then you drink it for a little while and you find yourself in a fast food drive through and they make a mistake on the other end and you get for the first time in some time the full flavored wholehearted expression of the coca-cola product and it tastes at first sip like you put a spoonful of sugar in your mouth you condition your appetite over time yes and amen but let us not discount again that instantaneous change in our desires wrought by the power of the gospel when we are saved away from our sins. We talked about this a little bit last week, but it bears repeating again here. If you are operating under the mindset that you're going to get your house in order and then come to Jesus, you will forever be chasing your spiritual tail. The power of the gospel promises a revolutionary change in our character as well as in our desires, enabling us in obedience and faithfulness before God in a way that we could never achieve apart from the power of the gospel at work in our heart and the influence of the Holy Spirit of God in our life. The gospel gives us new character and it gives us new desires. And this expresses itself in, in different ways. You ought to, as a believer, be able to look back across the course of your life and see how your character has been shaped by the gospel and how your desires have been changed. Each of us coming from different backgrounds may take note of different transformations that have happened in our life. I, I remember when God saved me, one of the most apparent shifts of heart for me was an interest in the reading of the Bible. I very proudly made it through my few years of high school education without ever reading a book. It was a great boast. And the day I walked out of Starfield High School for the last time as a student, I thought, well, I beat that. And I'll never have to read a book again. I'll make it my whole life. God saved me, and this, this interest, it was more than intrigue, more than curiosity, more than just a superficial interest, but a want to devour the Word of God and to know the God of the Bible and to understand His desires for my life. An obvious, apparent, a blatant change that God wrought in my heart in an instant. Not a conditioned appetite, not an adjustment with wisdom or maturity or age or just a transition in life, but an instantaneous change wrought by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 4 and 5 get to what I believe to be at the heart of this passage. Now, if I could skip forward for just a moment and address what Peter indicates here by writing style to be the heart of the passage, we'll come back to verses 4 and 5, the practical heart of the passage. You'll notice in your translations in verses 6 through 8, there, there are these verses that are offset, phrases and lines that are offset, indicating that these verses represent, for the most part, quotations or paraphrases of Old Testament passages. Peter uses a writing style here to indicate for us that this is the heart. He cites three different passages from the Old Testament 
all of which use the imagery or symbolism of the stone or the cornerstone to make reference to Jesus. Verse 6 says, look, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Verse 7 says, honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. From their Old Testament context, the stone is always indicative of the same person. You know, there are those passages in the Old Testament that New Testament writers or New Testament understanding comes to know have reference to the Messiah, but they may have been veiled at that time. It seems that the prophet came short of a full understanding of how God intended to make application of that particular verse or prophecy. But even in an Old Testament context, it was well understood that the cornerstone, the stone in these passages, had reference to the ministry of the Messiah and all that he would mean for us as the people of God. There's a little different nuance to the application of the stone imagery in each of these three passages. In Isaiah chapter 28, the references to the judgment of God that is to come. This stone would come, the stone around which our lives would be oriented, but he would be a stone with such weight, with such significance that he would grind to powder, he would crush in judgment those who oppose him or position themselves as enemies against his name or his kingdom. In Isaiah 8, he functions as our place of refuge as we orient our lives around this cornerstone. He becomes our safe place. He is a steady, stable foundation upon which we can build the house of our life and existence. Psalm 118, he is the victor over all of his enemies, vindicating the blood of those who die in his name winning freedom, liberty, and independence for those who entrust their souls to his care. Indeed, Jesus is all of these and more. He is our steady hand. He is our safe place. He is the faithful one. The primary in our passage is the idea of Jesus the Messiah as the cornerstone. Now, I don't know a lot about ancient Israelite architecture or construction, but I know enough to know that the cornerstone is a critical piece in the puzzle of construction. It was to be the first stone laid, and its angles were to be perfect, because from the cornerstone, all other stones were positioned. It was the stone that set the angles and the course. It was the stone about which all other stones in the construction project were to be oriented. So Peter says here that we are as living stones orienting our lives around Christ and the things of God. All of our life is built in orientation to the cornerstone who is Christ. He becomes our stable, steady, safe place. He becomes our sanctuary. Indeed, he is our victor affording us in himself what we could never find elsewhere. But one of the primary functions of the cornerstone is the positioning of us as living stones oriented around the person of Jesus. Go back to verse 4. Coming to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God, 
You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In a rather Jewish way, in a way that would have been relished by a first century Jewish congregation of Christians, Peter is saying, God is now affording you, through Jesus Christ, a new community. Notice that the language here, again, is rather, it's, it's rather Jewish. He, he says, you're chosen by God. You're living stones making reference to the temple. Now you are a physical temple built up by God to inhabit the presence and the glory of Jesus. You're a holy priesthood. And your function is to offer spiritual sacrifices. The church of Jesus Christ has supplanted the temple system. For those who are Jews, understanding the incredible significance of that temple system, Jesus is saying, now you are it. That place you could so scarcely go. That, that, that place that, that bore about it this presence, this dreadful presence that would strike fear in the hearts of those who held God in great reverence. Now you've become that place, the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. The presence of God abides in you. But even as God's presence abides there, you're being built up together as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, rejected by the world, but chosen by God. We've talked over the last few weeks of, of, of sort of this negative side of what Peter is teaching. Peter is teaching us that this, this land is not our home. In fact, this world is not our home. The, the, the not is what I mean by the negative, right? There is the positive in that our citizenship is in heaven, which is a positive that by far outweighs the negative. But what I mean is Peter is saying, this world is not your home and it's never going to be your home. It doesn't matter what you do. You can build houses and barns. You can establish roots. But this world can never be your home. The positive that is pressed here, and again in verses 9 and 10 of our passage, is that while we live this existence as strangers and pilgrims and sojourners in exile, we don't live this existence alone. Because God has knit us together as living stones. He has made of us, as the people of God, a new community. He's given us a place of refuge and rest and encouragement and fellowship and even accountability. God has established for us once more in Christ new community. This is a precious thing. And it represents a fundamental human need. You need community. I need community. Now I got news for you. You need the church. You need the church. I, I can remember as a lost kid, the first time I heard someone say, well, I don't believe in organized religion. And it was my buddy's way of saying, well, I, I wanna say that I believe in God, which he would later deny, but I don't want to be involved in all of the comings and goings of church. And I said to him then what, what I believe to be true now and believe to be in principle the case for so many who say such things. I said, Joe, you don't have a problem with organized religion. You mad because they caught you with that bag of weed in the youth group. <laughs> and that's exactly what it was. 
And I'm telling you, listen to me, you and I, in order to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, need the body of Christ. You and I need community. Now go beyond that. You need community even beyond the corporate assembly of the church in small groups and connect groups and fellowships that you can share in smaller teams so that you can enjoy the back and forth that that kind of fellowship and accountability creates in your life. We need community. And listen, God has afforded us this. God has given us this if we will only avail ourselves of the great blessing the church represents for us. Think of what a privilege it is to be able to participate in the life of the church. I have said for some time that the first months after coming to faith in Jesus were some of the loneliest days of my life. I didn't have enough spiritual maturity to be able to bear with the temptation that would come with continuing on with my old friends and even old family. I had to come away from all of that. And I was saved and baptized into a rural church. There were about 150 people there, very few people who were my age. And the one who were my age had nothing whatsoever in common with me. If I could just be frank and translate that for you, there was no one my age who was as cool as I was. But in spite of all of those differences, God managed to establish for me a sense of kinship and family and connectedness with people who had very different likes and interests, who come from very different ages and stations in life that I found, that I found myself as a 19-year-old kid and college student in that church. God has afforded us friendship and family within the body of Christ that knows no boundaries whatsoever. One of the features of the gospel, one of the features of the church that ought to be celebrated in a day and an age where there is so much emphasis on diversity is the cultural flexibility of the gospel. Think for a moment in terms of world religions. If you take virtually any world religion other than Christianity, you'll find that they're bound to specific geographic areas or locations. Islam, for instance, is largely exclusive to the Middle East and certain parts of Asia. You might concede Northeast Africa. Judaism, when it manages to escape ancient Israel's boundaries, Palestine as we know it today, the nation of Israel, it's even expressed within little enclaves, community groups that hold closely together. Buddhism is almost entirely exclusive to Eastern Asia. But the gospel of Jesus Christ knows nothing of those geographic or ethnic or racial boundaries. In, in fact, it's not quite equal, but there's a pretty even dispersion of Christians in North and South America, Europe and Africa and Asia. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ has no interest whatsoever in racial, ethnic or geographical boundaries. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The power of the gospel is such that it is pulling together a community of people of every tribe and tongue and nation bound together exclusively by the power of the gospel that has saved us from our sin. It is our lone marker for identification. That is what holds us together as a people. We don't meet together today on the basis of a shared race or ethnicity or even geographic location. 
but a shared love for Jesus who bled and died for our sin and rose again the third day and has by the power of the gospel shaped and changed our life forever. God has given us in the church community and fellowship. Jason and I were talking the other day about Genesis 12 and the missional impact of Genesis 12 when God calls Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans to be the father of a great nation and through that nation to bless the nations of the world. The new covenant is in many ways an extension of the fulfillment of that covenant God makes with Abram in Genesis chapter 12. You know what comes right before that? Genesis chapter 11. Now that's groundbreaking biblical research right there. In Genesis chapter 11, the people of the world build the Tower of Babel. They set their hand to do what is evil before God. God crushes their tower, and he disperses their languages and disperses the people. He scatters their community. And immediately after dispersing the peoples of the earth, immediately after, God sets about a plan, a missional plan, to gather unto himself once more, a people who are all together his of every tribe and tongue to worship him in spirit and in truth. I, 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 we keep pressing on this idea of community, but listen, I'm telling you, you and I need it. And again and again and again, we fail to avail ourselves of the great blessing the church of Jesus Christ is for us. We're like the husband and wife that finally get the date night, right? We're going to go out. We're going to spend some time together. We're going to talk. Oh, it's going to be great. You go to a nice restaurant. You can observe this in, in, in play in any restaurant on a Friday or Saturday night. And they come in and they sit down across the table from one another. And, and their spinal reaction is to grab their cell phone. And they sit across from one another in silence. And they surf Facebook until dinner is served and they go home in the absence of any real communication or fellowship in spite of the fact that that great gift was before them for the duration of the evening. And so many people treat the church of Jesus in the same way. It's here for our benefit, community so desperate to who we are. It's here. We need only connect ourselves to the body of Christ. He's given us new community. This next one is really closely connected to the idea of, of community. He not only gives us a new character, new desires, new community, he's given us in the gospel a new identity. Now, I, I say it's connected because, because it, it is, and, and you, you know perhaps what I mean by that. A, a lot of you moms and dads like us had kids at, at their first big middle school dance last night. And a lot of you, like me, were spying around and surfing social medias to see what they were doing or were not doing, you know. I think the thing that interests me most about the social activity of my kids is who they're hanging around with. Because you, you can tell how they regard themselves and what, in many ways, the future holds for them by the people they surround themselves with. Community and identity are inseparably bound together. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is who you 
are. Your identity as a follower of Jesus is as a follower of Jesus. Now, that may seem really basic, but I got to tell you by observation, it seems that there are real struggles in understanding this principle. Let's make a little application. Before you ever identify with your ethnic group, you are a follower of Christ. Before you ever identify with a political party, you are a follower of Christ. Before you ever identify with earthly citizenship or the nation of your birth, you are a follower of Christ. Before you identify with your athletic or intellectual ability, you are a follower of Christ. Before you identify with your family or your heritage, before you identify with your profession, you are a follower of Christ. And to find identity elsewhere, no matter how noble it may appear or feel to you, will only leave you in the end disappointed and despairing. The law lets you down, but Jesus never does. Brothers and sisters, Jesus never does. And I'm telling you, listen, we've got problems in this department in knowing who we are. And the problems in this department are creating problems in marriages and problems in families Problems in the workplace, problems in some churches, problems in your heart. It's creating fear and anxiety because you are dreadfully afraid that something is going to happen that compromises your identity. The loss of position, the loss of wealth, the loss of some gift or ability means your identity altogether changes. That's a dreadful proposition for you. And you live in almost constant fear that the next shoe is going to drop and what you have identified most closely with, which is just another way of saying idolized, may be taken away. Brothers and sisters, you hear me. The only thing in this world you can count on is the stability and faithfulness of the cornerstone who is Jesus Christ. That's where our identity is. Listen, all these other things can go away. All of these other things can go away. And I'm telling you, this is as fundamental, as foundational as this business of community. We're living in a world that's grasping and groping in the dark, trying to figure out who they are individually and collectively. And as the body of Christ, we of all people ought to stand ready with an answer. We are by the blood of Jesus, the people of God. That and that alone is what defines us. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. That's who you are. That's who you are, right? Now again, we're back to this use of Jewish language here. Think about the experience of Peter's audience. If indeed the majority of his audience is Jewish, and that certainly appears to be the case, their whole life has been disrupted by the gospel. Everything they'd known and come to expect about life, all of the things they might even take for granted had, had been disrupted, unsettled, uprooted by the gospel. 
it's, it's not just that in Judaism, your religious commitments are your religious commitments and everything else is in its own compartment. Your whole life is influenced by your religious commitments. Your calendar is set by your religious commitments. Your family and social interactions are set by your religious commitments. For that matter, your diet, your menu is determined by your religious commitments. And now they have, by the gospel, been called away from their former way of life. All of the rhythms and routines, the cadence of their life had been set by their religious commitment to Judaism. But now they'd come out and into the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all that had been unsettled and uprooted. Can you imagine the challenges that must have come with that? It'd be like being called in our culture away from Christmas celebrations and Thanksgiving celebrations and interest in athletics and all of those things that seem to be so primarily important in our culture. Come away from all those things. Come away from those things around which you have built and developed your life. It is in the use of this language that Peter is pressing not only the reality that they have a new identity in Christ, but that what they now have in Christ by far surpasses those old rhythms and routines and the cadence of a former way of life that could have never afforded them the great privileges we now find in Christ with whom we most closely identify. There's more in verse 9 than just identity. We have a new character new desires, new community, new identity, but a new sense of purpose as well. You need, to, you need to know who you are. You need to know where you belong. But you need to know what you're here for too. I hear this question discussed in Christian circles with, with as much confusion and wonder as, as the others. And there's a very clearly stated purpose for us, not just here, but elsewhere in the Bible as well. I get there's nuance, and I get, I get that you're going to find a vocation, and that's going to mark your life in many ways, and I get that you have certain gifts and abilities, and my hope would be that you would leverage those gifts and abilities, understanding your purpose and, and the way those can be drawn together in the fulfillment of that purpose. I get that we're not all cookie-cutter carbon copies of one another. I get all of that. But, but, but let us acknowledge together that we understand full well why it is that God has placed us here. Look back to verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is why we are here. You, you may be an athlete. And you can leverage your athleticism in order to proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into light. You may be a, a, a great mind. You may be a great intellect. And you can leverage your intellect to proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. God may have entrusted certain abilities to you. You can leverage those abilities to proclaim the goodness of the one who called you from darkness into light. You may love college football. That can be a beautiful thing. You can leverage your interest in that particular area to proclaim his name. But those things must never identify us. 
Our purpose in life is not to be athletes or intellects or college football fans or any of those things that are so frivolous, fleeting, and passing away. Those are a means to the end that we might proclaim the goodness of the one who called us out of darkness and into his great light. That's why we're here. Listen, that's why we're here. Who, who are we? As followers of Christ, we are bought by the blood of Jesus, the children of God eternally. Where do we belong? In the community of faith God has afforded us through the gospel. What are we doing here? Our purpose and function in life is to proclaim the praises of the one who bled and died for us. That, that's priority number one for us. I, I get on a Sunday morning meeting like this, I, I could be talking to folks for whom this is just completely foreign and way out in left field and, and maybe you don't identify with Jesus at all. And this idea of church's community is kind of strange and unfamiliar to you. And this idea of our life being lived for the express purpose of making much of Jesus seems really radical. I, I, want, I want you to know that there's a place for you in the kingdom. There's a place for you in the kingdom. The arms of the one who bled and died for you are open wide, beckoning that you would come, that you'd find purpose and identity and community in the one who alone can afford us these great gifts eternally. Would you come to him? You, you, listen, you can, you can chase after these things. You, if, if, even if you remove the dreadful thought of hell as an everlasting punishment for those who don't come to faith in Jesus, I'm, I'm telling you the promise of identity and purpose and community ought on their own to be enticing enough to compel us to come to him. Come to Jesus. Come, come, come. You'll find him good and faithful, steady stable cornerstone, worthy of our orienting our every, uh, every aspect of our life around his goodness and his great grace. Come, come, come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for all that you have afforded us in Jesus. God, I, I pray that you would speak to those here, that you remind us as the church of your great grace, the way you have provided for us so richly. I pray, God, that you would call out to those in darkness, draw them by the work of your spirit into your marvelous light, save to the uttermost. I pray, God, that you would help us, Lord, not only to delight in the community that you've afforded us, but that we'd be sensitive to the need to be community to those who are coming in to the assembly of our church. Help us to love well, and may Jesus receive all the glory. God, thank you seems such a, a, a modest response. Lord, we don't, we don't know what else to say. We live, Lord, in a constant state of gratitude. Even when we take for granted your favor and blessing, Lord, we, we live under it. We just thank you, Lord, for the provision of, of your son's blood the power of the gospel to save us. We pray that it be made effective in these next moments. We ask it in Jesus' name.